This week on Cold Steel. What I have to remind myself is this is my 200th time seeing somebody shot in the chest with a hole in their heart. For the med student, for that student nurse, this is their first time. Mm-hmm. And if you don't start to help them to conceptualize it now and they internalize this abnormally, that's where PTSD, I think, is largely comes from. Welcome to Cold Steel, the Canadian Journal of Surgery podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. The goal of the CJS podcast is threefold. The first is to highlight the best research currently being completed by Canadian surgeons. The second is to offer educational topics for both surgeons and trainees alike. And most importantly, the third goal is to inspire discussion, thoughts, creativity, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy it. in an era of increasing subspecialization is someone who can successfully merge two different disciplines. Dr. Joe DeBose is a trauma and vascular surgeon at the University of Maryland Medical Center. In this episode, we talk to Dr. DeBose about his training pathway, his experience in the military, and about integrating his vascular training with his trauma background, which includes his thoughts about Rebola. Just wanted to remind all our listeners that we love feedback and comments and please feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thank you and enjoy the episode. Well, Joe, Joe welcome to Cold Steel. Uh, you know, first, I, I'd like to really thank you as, as we do with all of our guests, but you know, you in particular are, are a super busy guy. And I would argue that, um, you know, you're probably the most uh, academically prolific um, trauma surgeon that I know about in the first, uh, you know, half of their career or so. Um, and you're always a tremendous guy to listen to and to, to follow and to watch. And you've done some really dynamic things. And I, I hope we can talk about some of those. So, so thank you and welcome. Absolutely. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, Chad. Yeah. I, I guess our first question out of the gate is for those listeners up in Canada who may not know you as well as, as we do, uh, where did you grow up and, and how did you end up in surgery? And what was sort of your training pathway a- along the way, so to speak? Oh, boy, it's a, it's a rapid succession of uh, decisions made with little information that seemed to work out. But, uh, <laughs> um, I grew up in uh, South Texas. I uh, left South Texas for a military college called Virginia Military Institute back in 1996 because it was the only place that offered me a track scholarship. I knew nothing about the military or that institution in particular, but... Uh, I did go. Uh, it was fantastic for me. I loved the regimented. Uh, it was really what I needed at that stage in my life. And from there, transitioned to um, deciding my mother was a nurse uh, and was this still is my hero. So uh, I transitioned to interest in medicine, went to the University of Virginia, where I uh, completed and wanted to pursue a surgery residency. At this point, the Air Force had paid, United States Air Force had paid for most of almost all of my education. So I certainly owed them time. And they told me, well, you know, uh, we'd love to have you for surgery training. We're going to send you to this little place uh, in Biloxi, Mississippi, called Keesler Air Force Base Medical Center. Never heard of it. Uh, sleepy, relatively sleepy little facility. Um, but about almost all the way through that, a little uh, summer or early fall storm called Hurricane Katrina rolled through and literally destroyed the entire hospital. 
So now I had to scramble to find a spot to finish my surgery residency and went back to the University of Virginia to do that. Um, I met another one of your Canadian cohorts, Kenji Inaba, during a rotation at, at Keesler when he was at the University of Miami as a fellow himself, and we were fourth-year surgery residents, and just really fell in love with trauma when I was down there on that four-month rotation. Loved Kenji, loved his hunger for research. He and I are just kind of like, you know, kindred spirits in, in many ways from across the border. He talks like you and says, I boot and things like that. And I talk with a redneck Southern draw, but we understand each other. So I, um, I followed him to LA County where he was a young faculty, finished my fellowship there, went from there uh, to San Antonio for a year uh, at the Wolford Paul Medical Center there, went to uh, ultimately to shock trauma here at University of Maryland from 2009 to 2013. And then went to do a vascular fellowship at the University of Texas, Houston for two years. Then went to University of California, Davis and Travis Air Force Base for two years and then moved back to Baltimore uh, in 2000, I think 17 or 18 and have been here since. And somewhere along that way, I have spent uh, some time with seven trips out with the United States uh, military at various locations for a while there. I was going in four months every year. So it's been a lot of moving around. Yeah, no, no kidding. You know, it's interesting though, you know, obviously I haven't been involved in the military, but cer certainly I would say that, you know, with each one of um, the steps that I went through personally, I, I moved to a different place and there was so much benefit in that, not only meeting new people and laying that foundational groundwork, but in particular, just seeing different systems, like you say. Yeah, you know, it really does help you become a uh, dogma breaker of sorts because every institution has their a little bit. We have this in our own fields as well, but there's just a little bit of dogma and practice patterns that really are just because they've always done it that way at a certain place. And to come in and be able to add a little more, you know, a, a little salt where there's pepper uh, from your background at other institutions, I think is good for the environment and good for the trainees and has really been enlightening for me. Yeah, there's no, there's no doubt. What what was practicing or, or at least training during Katrina like? You know, I was there. Uh, so uh, we, we had five surgery residents. And typically, you know, it's on the Gulf Coast of, uh, of Mississippi. So we had hurricanes that came through. And I was the single guy at the time in the program. Everybody else would take their families and evacuate, go a little bit further up north. And it was a great deal for me because I would sit and be the resident on call in the hospital for that week until the storm passed. And nine times out of 10 until Katrina came through, you literally just didn't do too much. You could read some and piddle around. And then when everybody else got back, you got a week off and I would go fishing or do something like that. Unfortunately, Katrina hit Biloxi on the teeth. And then a couple of days later shattered the, uh, the levees in uh, New Orleans and created havoc there. So um, that was very different. And it, it, it was a little, strange in that of those people that I trained with, uh, most of them I never saw again, you know, aside from at meetings for years. There's still some I, I still haven't seen. I've talked to them on the phone, but it's just a million training. One day you just pick up and have to go. And it's, there's no real transition kind of emotionally or, uh, or, or, or in talking with those folks, you know. Do you have a very interesting kind of fellowship training and and how did you think about that um and and were there any doubters in in terms of how you sequenced that and, and in your vision for your career yeah you know i um i had been i got out of my trauma fellowship and was really just progressing to being an academic trauma surgeon very much enjoyed that that's still half of my practice um maybe probably a little bit more honestly of my practice um but 
as time progressed, if you ask any trauma surgeon what their base, best case was in the last six months, odds are it's probably going to have a vascular injury associated with it. And I was no different in that I love those kind of things. And I could see the, you know, because it's dramatic. You stop bleeding, you repair a vessel, you restore perfusion, you save the day. Um, and they're fascinating. The marriage of anatomy and skill sets and procedures, it's just really, it, 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 it makes me giddy. You know, I'm a, I nerd out about that stuff. Um, and I could see more and more, um, it's a slow trend. It's, in, it's picking up pace now, but there's, it was a slow trend towards this implementation of endovascular technologies for some of these trauma skill sets, at least starting with diagnosis and uh, some of the definitive management stuff and more stable patients. So I said, you know, how do I go back about doing this? And um, I don't think any civilian trauma surgeon would entertain it after being out six years because the pay differential between a surgeon who's been out in the U.S. for six years and the fellow is probably pretty dramatic. Going home and telling the wife that you want to take a several hundred thousand dollar pay cut for two years is probably not going to go over super well. But I am, have always been a military surgeon, so the pay was going to be consistently low for me relative. Um, and it really lined up with the my, the time I wanted to spend, spend in the military. If I gave them the two years for that vascular fellowship and I had to give them two years back, it would line up perfectly to get me my 20 years for retirement. And it just made a lot of sense to me. And I, I did talk to a lot of folks. Um, I think there's a lot of, and I really, honestly, I got a lot of encouraging support in that regard. No, not many people told me I was crazy knowing that I was in the military, not going to take this huge pay cut, but no one really tried to talk me out of it. They just did wanted me to be realistic and understand what that process was going to be like and how it was going to feel going back from being the quote unquote boss as a trauma surgeon to being back to being one of the, you know, the kids as a fellow. Um, and that was a very humbling experience because when I showed up at UT Houston, they didn't care that I had written however many papers in trauma or what my expertise was. I was a, a rookie vascular trainee. And they, I was going to be treated accordingly. Um, but it was fantastic, and I really did enjoy it. That's fantastic, Joe. You know, one of the other, uh, you know, clear things that I think all of us know you on the on the, the injury side and in the world for it has been your fusion, you know, predictably of, of vascular, in particular endovascular and percutaneous maneuvers and techniques into trauma, and obviously, you know, with specific relevance or target to stopping bleeding. How, how did you initially frame that sort of in your mind and try and move some of those techniques along and, and really propagate that within the trauma community, which I think, you know, for me coming from HPV and you coming from vascular a little bit and trying to integrate those things with trauma as our, as our, as our really the core of what we're, we're, we're trying to, to get to at the end of the day, there is certainly obstacles and speed bumps in doing that. And from the outside anyway, it seems like you know, you've done that so effortlessly and flawlessly, but, I, but I'm sure you haven't. Well, it's, it's been, uh, there's been challenges along the way. I, I think that I, I certainly didn't do it alone. I'm not some trailblazer uh, of sorts. It's, it's been a group of us, and it's been both trauma and vascular surgeons. And then this core group, there's about a dozen of us in the country in the U.S. Uh, that are dual trained and dual boarded. Um, I think that first wave is of kind of people who did the full training on both sides is going to, is necessary because we have to be card carrying members of both parties and be able to speak at both, you know, the vascular meetings and the trauma meetings from the consideration standpoints and be, you know, respected as someone who, well, they did our training. That vascular, that guy's talking about uh, trauma surgeons need to be integrated in vascular injury care, but yeah. he did vascular training and he practices vascular, he practices what he, he preaches. 
Um, so I think that that's been helpful. I, I do think that a time will come where some of these skill sets will, uh, Rabo is an example of that, right? I mean, that's an endovascular balloon that's being placed in the aorta by trauma and acute care surgeons, mainly by necessity because the vascular surgeons aren't there when the patient comes in with the blood pressure of 50. They had to come from home. So those kind of opportunities for partnership between the two specialties are going to only increase, I think, with the advent of new technologies. And the funnest part for me is, is seeing something that's developed for something entirely different in the vascular world and then recognizing, oh, my gosh, there's a trauma application. Here. And uh, if you don't practice and dabble in both worlds, you don't see those potential needs on either side. So. I think that's the most exciting thing for me. And it really just is, it's a, it's a, it's a veritable harvest of, uh, of ideas when, when you are able to practice in both and see how things can be applied for both subsets of patients and borrow from both practice patterns. Uh, one thing that's always fascinated me is sort of like the mindset and how those might be different between the two practices. Dr. Ball and, and, and another surgeon in, in uh, Hamilton, Dr. Gamora, talked about what it was like to switch between doing um, their elective practices, which is not trauma, and then doing trauma surgery. Do you ever find that it, that you have to kind of change your mindset when you're switching between your sort of your vascular surgery hat and your trauma surgery hat, or do you find that those just complement each other and, and kind of contribute and make you a better surgery a surgeon in both? You know, I think there is a, a, a mental gear you have to shift uh, when you're uh, challenged with a trauma patient. I mean, I'll use as an example, right? So I get referred these things for review all the time, and these common pitfalls of vascular surgeons managing trauma or trauma surgeons managing vascular. And it's just the inability to frame shift between the two disciplines. And I have to catch myself often quite frequently, you know, example, a, a patient who needs a, and a lot of what I end up doing on a day-to-day -day basis actually probably fall under the interventional radiology field at most centers with embolization of a variety of ble uh, bleeding sources, solid organ and pelvis. Um, and I have to remind myself with vascular repairs and some of those other entities when I'm placing sheaths that, example, if you've got a small subarachnoid hemorrhage, probably not a good idea to systemically heparinize the patient. But if I'm a vascular surgeon kind of coming in cold, I've done three aortic cases that day and a trauma partner asked me to help them, my reflex is going to be, okay, we're now putting in the therapeutic uh, sheath, let's heparinize this patient. Um, so you have to have that. And if the trauma surgeons moved on to the next case and the vascular surgeons only one in the room, those are where the, the Swiss cheese can take effect. So you do have to frame shift a bit. Um, and, and, uh, it's a skill set, And I think it's in inherent to every trauma and vascular surgeon to be able to do that. But in the heat of the moment, we do rely on the reflexes we have from our backgrounds and our training. And that's where you can get into some, some problems. We, we would be remiss for our audience if we didn't ask you about your military training and, and your experience with the military because you really had some extensive deployment with the military. Um, what has that experience been like uh, being a military surgeon and how has that informed uh, your, your civilian trauma practice? Um, and can you tell us a little bit about some of your most memorable deployments? Well, yeah, I've been, uh, I'm approaching, this is my final year. I'm going to retire at 20 years. So I'm in the final 10 months or so of my military career. And I've had a lot of chance to kind of reflect back on the kind of the cool things I've been able to do. Um, I spent the first half of my military career as a trauma vascular surgeon. And I remember deploying like literally three months out from fellowship. I was put in Iraq as the trauma chief 
at our rural free hospital there at Bagram. And, and I, I got there and I'm surrounded by these grizzled old uh, 06 or colonels. I'm the young major. Um, and I had to manage all these personalities. But in the end, they really taught, these were general surgeons for the most part who'd been to war multiple times in the height of some of these conflicts. And I learned a tremendous amount about triage priorities and managing these patients collaboratively uh, across disciplines in a very tight-knit group. And um, it's really, in my mind, kind of the gold standard for I wish the way we did trauma care everywhere, and even in the civilian setting, that really tight-knit group that all collaborates very well together. Of course, those folks didn't have elective practices that they were busy with during the day. That was their one thing they had to do. Um, and then uh, several years ago, in I think 2015, I transitioned to join the um, Joint Special Operations Command. And that's really uh, smaller teams, very small teams, actually. Um, and the team lead is not some 06 colonel. It's uh, uh, typically a physician assistant who has special forces background. Could be SEAL, could be uh, Army Ranger, could be um, special Army Special Forces proper. Um, and that's who you take orders from. And that person may be a captain. And you may have 10 years more military expense than they do. But when they say jump, you jump. Because in that setting, with that clientele, you are, for all practical purposes, a weapon system that needs to be moved around aggressively to support the intervention. So it's a lot of mobility, a lot of making do with uh, kind of limited resources and thinking about how to preserve those resources in the context of tra uh, trauma care. So that has uh, also been an interesting kind of caveat and a different experience that I really do cherish. And I think both of those experiences through the two halves of the career really have informed what I do every day in the trauma realm. But the biggest thing is just the close-knit teamwork that you can do so much with so little if you have the right team and they play well together. What's your most memorable experience from, from being deployed, um, if that's something that you can talk about and share with us on the air? Yeah, you know, some of the Joint Special Operations Command stuff is probably not uh, fit for listening audience. I don't know what the uh, current clearance status on some of those missions are. But I, I will tell you, i tell you one of the most memorable experiences I had from the first half of my career. I got, uh, I was an Air Force trauma surgeon. I was here at Shock Trauma, actually. And I got called on pretty short notice because they had a big operation going off in Afghanistan. And they had the trauma chief down there was a 70 plus year old Navy captain who really just... Uh, Great surgeon, good surgeon. Uh, but that, at that age, uh, that pace, I think, was wearing on him. So they sent me down to um, assist. And I remember it took me, oh, gosh, forever to get there. I think it was three days waiting in various military terminals throughout random places in the world. And I got off the plane uh, after being up for or not much sleep for four days. Really just wanted a hot shower and a rack, a rack for a couple hours. And somebody came running to the airport and said, are you Dr. DeBose? And I said, yes. He said, drop your stuff there. We'll come back and get it. Come get me. We just had a fuel truck explosion from a Taliban attack. And there are, we have 36 casualties. And I, I'm like, well, this is a heck of a greeting. So wow. get to the facility. And it was a joint facility. So a lot of these surgeons were Canadian uh, surgeons. We had Canadian orthopods, two Canadian orthopods. We had... The, the, the other confounding factor here is we had a German, uh, a British neurosurgeon, a German anesthesiologist. It was a net, true NATO facility, and everybody had kind of done ATLS, but it was a little bit of chaos, and these burns were profound. And what had happened is an uh, enemy uh, combatant had walked up to a fuel truck that was being escorted by a patrol of Afghan soldiers and blew himself up, blew the fuel truck up, and you had, we had 36 guys who were severely burned. And unfortunately, 
the majority of them uh, were actually burned beyond uh, the, the capabilities for us to salvage them. Um, but it was just the next, after being up that long and being the next 36 hours, it was simultaneously one of the most horrific and also one of the most rewarding experiences because having been trained in kind of burn management in that environment and understanding what our clinical practice guidelines were from our joint trauma system, really a lot of those folks didn't have any idea what that was. So I was able to show them, we were able to go around and triage people. Unfortunately, I had to transition a lot of them to comfort care. Uh, but because they had inhalational injuries greater than 80% body surface area burns. But um, that was that. I will not forget that one. That's for sure. Joe, that, that's an amazing story. And I'm, I'm sure you have, uh, you know, many more that would, that would fascinate everybody. I, I'm curious, and maybe this is a, certainly a softer question, but, you know, for those of us that do emergency general surgery being one thing, but certainly horrific injury, whether that's civilian or military, um, you, you know, dealing with with that sort of story and that sort of uh, outcome, uh, I think can be challenging for all of us. And and I think we probably all handle it quite quite differently. Is there any tips or tricks or or thoughts that you've uh, generated over uh, quite a long career doing high intensity stuff that you you sort of uh, you you go to or you utilize on a regular basis to do that? I mean, the kind of the psychological element of dealing with all. Yeah, that? yeah, I think so. I think, honestly, I think um, uh, communication. Don't internalize things. You, if something bothers mm -hmm. you, just say, you know, you don't need to have to be able to get words to it. Say, man, that really bothered me. And start talking to it to, to other folks. I also have found, I, I'll tell you, the, the, the memories from my military time that haunt me the most, that uh, get me a little teared up when they start rolling out the American flag and the national anthem at a baseball game, for example, are not for mm -hmm. my second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh deployment. It's the first one. And um, because the experience was new, it was very traumatic. You're young, you're idealistic. Uh, there are a couple of patients that I wish I had had different tools or been a better, better surgeon that I, maybe I could have saved them. Probably not. I don't know now. But um, those are the ones that really are the toughest. And, and I've tr what I've translated that to mean is I – Especially in our modern teaching environment, we see patients at shock trauma die almost, you know, certainly several times a week. It's a shock city with gunshot wounds. And what I have to remind myself is this is my 200th time seeing somebody shot in the chest with a hole in their heart. For the med student, for that student nurse, this is their first time. Mm -hmm. And if you don't start to help them to conceptualize it now and they internalize this abnormally, that's where PTSD, I think, is largely comes from. And a lot of the vets I know, they get PTSD either from repetitive kind of traumas or a lot of them, if you look through, uh, you know, you talk to vets at our VA system, and I'm sure it's the same in Canada, is one traumatic incident that occurred early in their career, and they didn't push through it to get multiple uh, experiences to learn how to cope and deal with it. The surgery is the same way, right? The first time you put a scalpel to skin, I would say probably you guys can back me up on this. It's a little unsettling. I'm cutting mm -hmm. out a live human being, right? I'm making an incision. It's a, your hand's a little unsteady. You probably you make the cut with like one cell layer, you know, because you're, you're not. <laughs> and I always tell the students, you know, I want to see some fat. It's okay. You're not going to hurt them. They're asleep and we've got them pain control and all that good stuff. Um, but over time, now, if I put a scalpel in your hands and you need to do something quickly, you need to do it. You don't think about that first incision piece. It's the same with dealing with the most severely injured patients in many ways. Uh, and combat experience, I think, in many ways. Um, so you, you, but you have to on the front end. You have to look around and consider who's experiencing this for the first time, and let's talk about it. 
Let's even wait till the moment, the moment clears, but then talk about it and say, wow, that was really, you know, that was crazy. Um, there, there's some deep stuff that went on there. How do you feel about it? And I think that's important. This is uh, some really moving and, and powerful. It got really deep. I thought this was going to be like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, but but we can't couldn't not have you speak about something that's so important. And I, I think that advice is is uh, is really profound. It is uh, very important. I think the next time that you're around a patient dies, turn and look around the room and see who's in there, whose eyes are a little misty, who uh, is shaking a little bit. And those are the people, as we do this more, we have learned to cope with it. Be the next generation, help the next group cope with it. Too. That's fantastic advice. Uh, Dr. DeBose, I, I did want to talk to you a little bit about, um, obviously, what, what we've, we've sort of alluded to and what is clearly uh, an area of expertise for you, which is the merging of your, your vascular surgery uh, background as well as trauma surgery. And you actually have a fantastic talk uh, about this on YouTube. Uh, where you gave grand rounds talking about the evolving paradigms in, in vascular injury management. Um, for, for those of us who haven't seen that talk, could you sort of summarize uh, the, that, the concepts in that uh, talk? Yeah, I, I think uh, the enthusiasm I have for this talk in this area is that we have a lot of emerging technologies which are very exciting uh, and have the potential to do a lot of good for a lot of patients. And I think it's a marriage of uh, devices developed for vascular indications that have trauma implications. So, um, and the ability to recognize that and apply them appropriately is really a cool thing. And I think we'll, we're going to help a lot of patients. But the, the challenge is just because you have a shiny new toy doesn't mean it's always the right thing to use. And so even when you think about endovascular stents, for example, um, it's changed the way we do business for blunt thoracic aortic injury. Open uh, aortic repair, the old clamp and so, is essentially non-existent anymore, right? Um, axillo subclavian injuries uh, are moving that way. If you look at data from five years ago, about 11% of those were managed with uh, endovascular stent technologies. And now presently about 40% are from our most recent review of our AAST vascular injury registry. Other sites may not make as much sense. Uh, we have some pretty durable uh, solutions for extremity stuff, for example. I don't think you need to be putting stents in the superficial femoral artery when you can do a reverse saphenous vein graft repair. Just simply from the standpoint that we know those interposition repairs are going to behave themselves and do well for patients for decades because we have that experience, whereas an endovascular stent's likely to need multiple interventions, serial follow-up, anticoagulation, um, the carotid artery is another one where boundless enthusiasm in the atherosclerotic world creeped over into the trauma world for stent grafts about, you know, eight to 10 years ago. And then we finally figured out that the majority of those just need antiplatelet therapy and a chance to heal before we make that hard decision to put a, a, some, a piece of metal in there. So um, I think it's exciting. There needs to be a caution. There needs to, it needs to be data driven, but it's really a cool time to be interested in vascular injury from where I sit. Um, I mean, and there's there's a lot to kind of unpack in in what you just said. I think one one thing to bring up right up from the the outset is sort of, um, you know, who is in your opinion going to be at the forefront of actually managing vascular trauma as we go forward? You know, especially as there's more options available to to surgeons. 
Um, do you see trauma surgeons continuing to be um, the, the primary operators uh, when vascular trauma comes in? Or, or do you think that there's going to be eventually a shift? And, um, you know, if you ever want to have some fun, you can go on Twitter and, and look up, uh, you know, whenever uh, some of the trauma surgeons, vascular surgeons start talking about vascular trauma, and you'll see some fireworks. Uh, oh, yeah. But, uh, like, where do you see that, the evolution in practice going down the road? You know, I, I think it's going to be far more individualized by center and experience than anybody is arguing. We can have these debates about, oh, it should always be vascular surgeons that own vascular injury, or it should always be trauma surgeons that are capable. The reality is that uh, it, takes a, it takes a champion or ideally champions at whatever institution and whatever configuration of skill sets that bring open and endovascular to the mix. Is that dual trained people? Sure, that'll work. Uh, interventional radiologist and trauma surgeon, that sure works. A vascular, young vascular partner and a, a trauma provider, that also works. Whatever the configuration, however you build your team, you, if you want to win the championship, you got to build an effective team. And, and, and I think that's the key to success. Now, when we get into these real battles, these turf wars I see, uh, classically on the American East Coast, where you have kind of congested centers, big bulky centers where people have, you've got IR, interventional radiology, vascular and trauma, all with big personalities, well-established, large, successful divisions. Then you get into these turf battles that are a little bit unhealthy. Now, that's I'm, I'm not trying to characterize every center that way, but I certainly know of some that are. Uh, and yet you go to the American West where there's a lack of those kind of strong, big, bulky programs, and people, they figure it out. You know, they have uh, whoever's interested acquires the skill set to do it safely, and partners in effective fashion with other, other disciplines and they figure it out and they do great. Yeah, I think that's so true, Joe. You know, uh, clearly we've both written a lot about timeliness to stopping bleeding and it's not like you and I have come up with that technique. It's been around for almost 100 years. But, you know, the reality, and I think the, the line really is um, a lot of these percutaneous techniques are that. They're, they're techniques, they're tools in a tool belt and it's about delivering you know, rapid, timely care to the right person in the right place. And whoever is the skilled individual in that system to do that should probably be supported, um, you know, to the best of everyone else's abilities to be able to deliver that care. Well, and, and the other thing you have to, it's not just interest, right? It's not just the skill set. It's also about availability. Yes. And that's why I don't think trauma surgeons will ever be completely out of the mix because we have, somebody has to get the process started, whether it's just getting femoral access, putting a Reboa in, taking them to the operating room to get things started while the vascular surgeon's coming from home. Um, you, it, it's like a, I don't know the hockey equivalent for you guys, but it's, uh, it's like a baseball team. I mean, you need a starter, you need a middle reliever, and you need a closer. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that if you build out your team effectively, that's how you win ballgames. Yeah, there's no doubt. I, I completely agree. Joe, let, let me revisit the Reboa in, in particular with you, just, be, you know, because it's it's sort of been sexy now for, I don't know, what do you think, like probably close to 10 years. And there's certainly been some heavyweight uh, debates or personalities on both sides of that, both sides of that. And, you know, a lot of discussion of, of, of the pendulum swinging too far one way in some centers versus others. With all that said, how do you frame Reboa in the real world? And in particular, um, you know, you, you and I, I think, would both agree it's an essential tool on the right patient. But how does a program then go about uh, obtaining expertise in, in Reboa and being able to safely not only introduce that technology and utilize it, but also, to, you know, the importance of monitoring their outcomes and, and improving over time? 
Yeah, I, I think you hit the two big points is acquire the expertise. Um, that can be done through, you know, the American College Surgeons Basic Endovascular Skills for Trauma course teaches primarily Reboa, but you can learn it from a, a master at your own facilities. Um, be familiar with the device, familiar with the pitfalls, most importantly. If you know where the thing can go wrong, you can avoid it. Um, and I think it's not going to be for every patient. The hard part about Reboa and the challenging thing to study is who's the perfect patient for Reboa. And I don't know if we're ever going to define the perfect patient um, because so much of that also, you, to, to get the perfect outcome, you need the ideal patient and you need the expertise and the follow-on. I think you do need to... Um, be, have a, an appropriate process improvement, uh, review these things when they happen. Was this the right patient? Was it not the right patient? Uh, how did it go? Where can we improve? Um, educate everyone on what Reboa is and what it can and cannot do. And most importantly, I think sometimes we, you know, it's a challenging thing to study uh, because so much of the information that we need to determine if a patient is correctly selected for Reboa or not occurs in the mm -hmm. first minutes first 10, mm -hmm. 15 minutes of arrival. Did they respond to resuscitation or not? And unfortunately, there's no registry out there that has the response to resuscitation. I have their mission blood pressure, right, from NTDB or any of the, the TQIP study, which is the TQIP data has been used by multiple folks uh, to look at, and it's not particularly flattering for a bow when you use it, but I would contend that it's, you don't know how much blood was given over what time frame and what the physiologic response was. If the patient responded to blood, they didn't need Reboa. If they don't respond, then you need to do something different. And if you can get to the OR in five minutes, like the old guys say they can't, which is a can, which is a myth, um, then great. But uh, you can't let the patient expire in front of you for want of a tool that might assist them. I also think we need to avoid the conversation. We got into this discussion about Swan Gantz catheters, like 15, mm -hmm. years, right? It's a tool. Yeah. The that's right. And the Swan Gantz are both tools. And it's not the tool that's to blame. It's how you use the tool, right? Swan Gantz is a classic. I mean, there's all kinds of studies you can find. Swan Gantz kill people. Swan Gantz don't kill people. Uh, they're useless. or they're not. Useless. It's not what the Swan Gantz in particular was a, a device, an endovascular device that was used for advanced monitoring information. And what you did with that information was what is important. And I think Roboa, particularly now as a, a monitoring device with some of the modern devices where you can get A-line a monitoring above and below the balloon, uh, and a therapeutic device, we fall into some of the same trap. It's not the BOA. It's the training and the expertise and patient selection. And the patient selection of all the things is the most challenging to try to get at. But we're chewing away at it and trying to figure out. Yeah, I think that's, you know, it's, it's so well said. Your, your summary is, you know, dead on. And I'll, I'll tell the listeners that, you know, you're, you're a humble guy, but you've, you've worked in, and trained in two places that are really on the leading edge of, of the, of the use of not only percutaneous uh, tricks and techniques, but, but Rabo in particular. And, you know, it's, it's easy to say, well, institution X or institution Y uses that in everybody and too much. But whenever you speak on it, you know, the way you, that you frame it is, is, uh, is superb. And uh, I think your, your voice has really risen above the, the rest as reliable and, and helpful. So thank you for that. Yeah, I, I, you know, I just, I think about it a lot and I think about the smart way to do it. There's a lot of divisive voices out there, people who are super proponents for Reboa or super opponents from Reboa. For sure. And yeah. uh, I think it's okay on the, it's okay to be critical of any new technology, but you can't be dismissive. Uh, you know, just outright dismissive on the basis of, of data that you, it's not answering the question. So be critical of any new technology gets introduced, but avoid 
being dismissive because otherwise somebody else is going to pick it up and use it. And then you're not going to be left without that tool to save your patients. You sort of already touched on this, um, as you said, where, where you, need, you really need to review your outcomes and, and have a robust way of tracking quality. But how do you see us going forward uh, in terms of evaluating uh, new tools like Reboa, like what do you, how do you, how do you see that going about? What what things do you think we can do better um, to ensure that these things get rolled out uh, safely? Like like you know, I can tell you, uh, in the colorectal world, there's a big debate going on about TATME. Like there's many yeah. many different areas of surgery that ha- are running into this problem. How do you see you know us going forward embracing new technologies while at the same time recognizing that? You know, many things that we thought were were useful are maybe not as useful as we thought, or or only useful in in very specific situations. Yeah, you know, you have to build a foundation of data, and you can do that through different ways. Everybody would love to do a prospective randomized control trial that has twenty thousand patients in it, but it's just not a reality, particularly here in the U.S. Um, the way that we have skinned some of that cat and tried to provide at least some foundational information, uh, and the U.S. has been through these, or I have at least, is that that my goal has been to build these larger multi-center registries that help get at some of these vascular injury questions. We have the AAST Perspective Observational Vascular Injury Treatment or PROVE-IT registry. You've got to have an acronym for a study or it's not going to stick, right? So it's the PROVE-IT registry. And then the ROBOA registry is the aorta uh, or aorta conclusion for resuscitation and trauma and acute care surgery or aorta registry. Um, those are not perfect. Uh, I don't have in those all day variables I would love to have, but it, it's most in the U.S. at least trauma is one of the least funded disease processes that uh, inflict, affects, you know, more people than I mean, there's more research going on in hangnails. Uh, maybe I'm extrapolating a little bit or exaggerating than trauma in the United States. But we need to do a better job of getting funding for some of these things. But in the absence of that, you have to rely on well-intentioned people who can provide reasonable quality data to try to get at some of these things. I, I think, and, and continue the debates. I, I think all the, all conversation, and I'm not talking about screaming matches. I'm not talking about digging your heels in because my dog knows better than my, your dog, Mark, uh, but real open ended, thoughtful conversations between smart people. We'll figure out the, where the applications fit to a 90% solution. We're never going to get to 100%, but you got to have data and, and open minded people to get to that 90% solution. That's a, that's a really interesting point that you bring up, Joe, which is the, you know, the, the funding of the research and the quality improvement side of what, of what we do in injury and, and how traditionally and, and chronically underfunded that element is compared to, you know, a lot of the things I do on my HPB oncology side, which are much, much, much better funded. And it's an interesting thing to think about. I, I always sort of, you know, have taken the viewpoint that a lot of it's our, our fault. Um, you know, there, there's enough TV shows on injury and pre-hospital care and yeah. physician shows that we really shouldn't be, I, I think, sort of in this position, you know, nationally and internationally, but we seem to be. In, and I, I don't know why that is. Probably just everyone's busy and hasn't really put the infrastructure together to, to deal with it. But do you have any thoughts on, on funding and, and the chronic challenges of that, especially on the research and the quality side? I don't have a great solution. We've struggled there. I will tip my hat to the American College of Surgeons Committee on Trauma which and other trauma organizations in the U.S., which have tried to change the, the thought process of lawmakers with regards to funding for trauma. But it's, uh, you know, our National Institutes of Health doesn't even really think about trauma as a disease process. Uh, 
time. The uh, other organizations, all these other disease process, cancers, a variety of them, breast cancer, colon cancer, prostate cancer, um, they all have on some level, uh, everybody's been touched by those things. Most, a lot of people have been touched by trauma too, but they've been touched by these and these organizations have fun runs. They have uh, very effective fundraising uh, mechanisms. They have commercials. Um, they have breast cancer week. Um, we don't have a trauma week, you know, in the United States. Um, yeah, exactly. And, and, the, and the trauma processes are frequently abrupt. They're sad. They're uh, the ones that really claim lives are sad and abrupt. It's not, you know, I, I watched my mother suffer through breast cancer and that now I'm going to champion this cause. I had time to really get that whole cause burnt into my very soul to move mm. forward and champion for funding. And, and those are the people that march on Capitol Hill and, and get the funding. And it's touched so many people, uh, cancer diseases in particular, um, that it needs funding. But I, I just, I agree with you. I, I'm kind of a marvel a bit at how trauma has not, it's, you think about, you think about any cancer, you can think of a movie star that's had that right? Or even uh, aortic aneurysms. You can think of a, a movie star that's died as a complication of that. But trauma, James Dean crashing his car into a pole, you know, all those decades ago, didn't seem to result in any additional trauma training, right? Uh, trauma funding. So it's um, yeah. It's really been a, a pleasure to have you on the podcast. And I wanted to just put in a plug for a podcast uh, that you recently started, um, called Tiger Country, and we'll put the uh, the uh, links uh, in the description in the show notes. Um, but I, I just wanted to also note that you've been on a lot of other podcasts, and, and one of the ones I really enjoyed that you, you were recently on was um, the podcast with uh, Scott Weingart on the Eam Crit podcast. We were talking about this before we started the show, um, and you did a really interesting episode with him um, talking about something that we don't discuss very often but is a underlying reality to our interactions with emergency medicine. You, you, you talked about with Scott Weingart about why emergency medicine and trauma surgery just can't get along. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what that discussion was like and, and what motivated you to do an episode like that? Yeah, you know, I don't want to ruin the whole podcast because it was an exceedingly interesting conversation. And I would encourage, I'm not trying to self-promote here, but Scott's a really thoughtful guy. and We didn't agree on everything, um, but uh, the, that whole thing came about essentially you know, I, we all notice it, right? We're all taught, every, a lot of the people listening here on this podcast are going to be surgeons. And we're all taught, don't trust the ER doctors. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know surgical diseases, right? So, uh, and the ER docs, if you ask them, according to them, what they're told by their senior mentors about surgeons is, oh, those guys just want to come down here and cut up people. They don't want to actually make people better. You know, whatever the stereotypes, there's stereotypes across every specialty. And I think it, the, the fun thing about stereotypes and I'm not talking get into the deep weeds and the dark waters of racial stereotypes or any of those things, although those need to be talked about openly as well, especially in the modern era. But when it comes to especially stereotypes, the best way to confront them is just head on and, and ask people, what, what's, the, what's your stereotype of me, of my field? And how do I fit into that? What do, how do I reinforce that? Uh, and what are the factors that contribute to that? And if you understand those factors, and I think more than anything, if you understand the stressors and the thought processes of the people that you're working with that you have stereotypes about with regards to their specialty, you better you become better partners. So uh, Scott and I had a great conversation. Like I said, I didn't agree with everything. I think at one point in there, he said that surgeons just have no business learning resuscitation. They should just stay out of the way. And um, 
you know, and he talked a little bit about the fact that we often, depending on every facility is different here at Shock Trauma, we don't really have an ER. We have our trauma resuscitation area where we work kind of collaboratively with anesthesiology ourselves and our EM, a heavy burden of EM residents, not a burden, a heavy opportunity for EM residents to get involved. Um, but, you know, your traditional, some of your traditional trauma centers, you're, you're stepping down as the trauma surgeon into the ER docs realm. And you're, you're often as surgical type A personalities, which that's their stereotype of us. You're stomp, you're stomping in there with your cowboy boots and your spurs and you're bossing folks around and you're not, and you're not being respectful of uh, dragging the mud in on their carpet, you know? So it, uh, it, I find the stereotypes fascinating. We did one with our, uh, my wife just finished nurse practitioner training. And we did one with her before she finished on uh, tr nurses, trauma nurses and doctors. Uh, and there's a couple other ideas that I have along those lines. But I think it's uh, those, those stereotypes, kind of confronting them head on and talking about them. One, it's amusing because we all kind of know what the other folks say about us in terms of the stereotypes. But if you, talk, if you can mention it, you can manage it. And I think leaving those kind of things unspoken about what the stereotypes are and why they exist is really criminal. You know, you've got to get them out there. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again.